This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William M. Hetherington, as read by Leah Domes. Tape number 12. Later writers on that doctrine have indeed employed that word as older writers had done and had thereby furnished occasion to the opponents of the doctrine to misrepresent it. But the Westminster divines cautiously avoided the use of an offensive term, carefully selected such words as were best fitted to convey their meaning, and in every instance used them with the most strict and definite precision. Many other examples might be given of the remarkable accuracy of thought and language which forms a distinguished characteristic of the confession of faith. But we must content ourselves with suggesting the line of investigation, leaving it to every reader to prosecute it for himself. Another decided and great merit of the confession consists in the clear and well-defined statement which it makes of the principles on which alone can securely rest the great idea of the coordination yet mutual support of the civil and the ecclesiastical jurisdictions. It is but too usual for people to misunderstand those parts of the confession which treat of these jurisdictions, some accusing them of containing Erastian concessions, and others charging them with being either lawless or intolerant. The truth is, they favor no extreme. Proceeding upon the sacred rule to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, they willingly ascribe to the civil magistrate a supreme power in the state. All that belongs to his province, not merely with regard to his due authority over the persons and property of men, but also with regard to what pertains to his own official mode of rendering homage to the King of Kings. It is in this latter department of magisterial duty that what is called the power of the civil magistrate, circa sacra, about religious matters consists. But there his province ends, and he has no power in sacris, in religious matters. This is most carefully guarded in the leading proposition of chapter 30. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. The leading Erastians of that period learned and subtle as they were, felt it impossible to evade the force of that proposition. 
and could but refuse to give to it the sanction of the legislature. They could not, however, prevail upon the assembly either to modify or suppress it, and there it remains, and must remain, as the unanswered and unanswerable refutation of the Erastian heresy by the Westminster Assembly of Divines. In modern times, it has been too much the custom of the opponents of Erastianism tactically to grant the Erastian argument, or at least the principle on which it rests, by admitting or even asserting that if a church be established, it must cease to have a separate and independent jurisdiction and must obey the laws of the state, even in spiritual matters, but then declaring that as this is evidently wrong, there ought to be no established church. There is more peril to both civil and religious liberty in this mode of evading Erastianism than is commonly perceived. For if it were generally admitted that an established church ought to be subject, even in spiritual matters, to the civil jurisdiction of the state, then would civil rulers have a direct and admitted interest in establishing a church, not for the sake of promoting Christianity, nor with the view of rendering homage to the prince of the kings of the earth, but for the purpose of employing the church as a powerful engine of state policy. That they would avail themselves of such an admission is certain, and this would necessarily tend to produce a perilous contest between the defenders of religious liberty and the supporters of arbitrary power. And if the issue should be the triumph of Erastianism, that issue would inevitably involve the loss of both civil and religious liberty in the blending of the two jurisdictions, which is the very essence of absolute despotism. Of this the framers of our confession were well aware, and therefore they strove to procure the well-adjusted and mutual counterpoise and cooperation of the two jurisdictions as the best safeguards of both civil and religious liberty and as founded on the express authority of the word of God. It never yet has been proved from either scripture or reason that they were wrong, although their views have been much misunderstood and grievously misrepresented. The confession of faith has often been accused of advocating intolerant and persecuting principles. It is, however, in truth, equally free from latitudinarian laxity on the one hand and intolerance on the other. An intelligent and candid perusal of chapter 20 on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience ought of itself to refute all such calumnies. The mind of man never produced a truer or nobler proposition than the following. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. The man who can comprehend, entertain, and act upon that principle can never arrogate an overbearing and intolerant authority over the conscience of his fellow man, much less wield against him the weapons of remorseless persecution. But there is a very prevalent and yet very false method of thinking or pretending to think respecting toleration and liberty of conscience. Many seem to be of opinion that toleration consists in making no distinction between truth and error, but regarding them with equal favor, 
which was precisely the theory of Nye and his brethren, and also of Cromwell, till they were in possession of power, but no longer. This opinion, if carefully analyzed, would be found to be essentially of an infidel character. Many seem to think that by liberty of conscience is meant that every man should be at liberty to act in everything according to his own inclination, without regard to the feelings, convictions, and rights of other men. This would indeed be to convert liberty into lawlessness and to make conscience of licentiousness. But the confession proceeds upon the principle of that truth can be distinguished from error, right from wrong, that though conscience cannot be compelled, it may be enlightened, and that when sinful, corrupt, and prone to licentiousness, men may be lawfully restrained from the commission of such excesses as are offensive to public feeling and injurious to the moral welfare of the community. If this be intolerance, it is a kind of intolerance of which none will complain but those who wish to be free from all restraint of law, human and divine. Nothing in our opinion but a willful determination to misrepresent the sentiments expressed in the confession of faith or a culpable degree of willful ignorance respecting the true meaning of these sentiments could induce any man to accuse it of favoring intolerant and persecuting principles. Certainly the conduct of those who framed it gave no ground for such an accusation, though that calumny has been often and most pertinaciously asserted. On this point also, it would be well if people would take the trouble to ascertain what precise meaning the framers of the confession gave to the words which they employed, for it is not doing justice to them or their work to adopt some modern acceptation of a term used by them in a different sense, and then to charge them with holding the sentiment conveyed by the modern use or misuse of that term. Yet this is the method almost invariably employed by the assailants of the confession of faith. It may be readily admitted that the Westminster divines used expressions in reference to what was called unlimited toleration, which were not only strong and severe, but harsh and susceptible of being so construed as to have a persecuting aspect, expressions which would not now be used. But let it be also remembered that these expressions were not employed against the principle of toleration itself, rightly understood. They were aimed against that licentiousness which was claimed as a cover to immoralities too horrible to be named and to civil misdemeanors perpetrated in the name of religion, fatal to the very existence of society. The avowed toleration of such atrocities by an assembly of divines would have amounted to nothing less than a proclaimed dissolution of all law, civil, moral, and religious, human, and divine. A few remarks may be made with regard to the plan according to which the confession is constructed. A confession of faith is simply a declaration of belief in religious truths, not scientifically discovered by man, but divinely revealed to man. While, therefore, there may fairly be a question whether a course of systematic theology should begin with disquisitions relative to the being and character of God as revealed, or with an inquiry what natural theology can teach, 
proceeding thence to the doctrines of revelation, there can be no question that a confession of faith in revealed religion ought to begin with that revelation itself. This is a plan adopted by the Westminster Confession. It begins with a chapter on the Holy Scriptures, then follow four chapters on the nature, decrees, and works of God in creation and providence. And these five chapters form a distinct division systematically viewed of the confession. The next division relates to the fall and consequent miserable condition of man, the remedy divinely provided, its nature, mode of application, and results as effectually applied. And this division, beginning with the sixth chapter, ends with the eighteenth. The next two chapters relating to subjects of such deep and comprehensive importance as the law of God and the liberty of conscience may well be regarded as themselves constituting a third division. The fourth, beginning with the chapter on religious worship and proceeding with the various relations between the visible church and the world, contains eleven chapters from the twenty-first to the thirty-first inclusive of both. The two remaining chapters, looking forward to the future so far as that has been revealed, conclude the confession. This plan, when rightly understood, appears, as we venture to think, as perfect as any uninspired production can well be, and it is so because it closely follows the course and language of inspiration. Some captious objections may be made to a few expressions which have either become obsolete or have undergone a change of meaning by the modifications incident to every living language in the lapse of time and by the progress of cultivation. But any slight obscurity thus occasioned may be easily removed, either by referring to the writings of that age or by the insertion in modern editions of two or three glossarial notes. In one instance, there may seem to be a collision between the statement of the confession on the subject of creation and the discoveries and deductions of geology. But as this is not greater than the apparent disagreement between the Bible and geology, it will of course be removed whenever the Mosaic record and geology have been reconciled. Till then, those who subscribe the confession of faith are in no worse condition than those who believe the Bible and may safely allow science to prosecute its investigations without anxiety and alarm, confident in this, that when these apparently conflicting inquiries have been fully elucidated, it will be found that the truth of God's works has but confirmed the truth of God's word. A plan similar to that already described was also employed in preparing those admirable digests of Christian doctrine, the larger and shorter catechisms, and so far as can be ascertained by the same committee. For a time, indeed, they attempted to prosecute the framing of both confession and catechisms at once, but after some progress had been made with both, the assembly resolved to finish the confession first, for reasons already stated. By this arrangement, they wisely avoided the danger of subsequent debate and delay. Various obstacles, however, interposed and so greatly impeded the progress of the assembly that the catechisms were not so speedily completed as had been expected. 
They were at length presented to the House of Commons, the shorter on the 5th of November, 1647, and the larger on the 14th of April, 1648. Both were transmitted to Scotland, carefully examined by the General Assembly, and approved. The larger by an act passed on the 2nd of July, 1648, and the shorter on the 28th of July, 1648. It is not necessary to state the systematic method of the catechisms as that has been done with regard to the confession which they closely followed, with one very important exception. The catechisms contained nothing relative to church government, but are purely doctrinal. This might arise very naturally from the consideration that as a catechism is intended chiefly for the use of children, it ought not to contain anything unsuited to their period of life and stage of mental development. This very prudent omission has already been productive of the most beneficial results, for the ready access which is secured to all parties who agreed in doctrine but contended fiercely on the subjects of form and government. Results even more beneficial than ever may be hoped for as likely to arise from the same happy omission. Scottish Presbyterianism split asunder as it is into three great sections, yet all retaining their hereditary regard for the Shorter Catechism, so long used as the very basis of Scottish education, may yet combine in determining that it shall not cease to be universally employed in conveying religious instruction to the minds of their children and their children's children through all succeeding generations. Such a result would itself secure that the labors of the Westminster Assembly had not been in vain. There is one anecdote connected with the formation of the Shorter Catechism, both full of interest and so very beautiful that it must not be omitted. In one of the earliest meetings of the committee, the subject of deliberation was to frame an answer to the question, What is God? Each man felt the unapproachable sublimity of the divine idea suggested by these words, but who could venture to give it expression in human language? All shrunk from the too sacred task in awestruck, reverential fear. At length it was resolved, as an expression of the committee's deep humility, that the youngest member should make the attempt. He modestly declined, then reluctantly consented, but begged that the brethren would first unite with him in prayer for divine enlightenment. Then in slow and solemn accents he thus began his prayer, O God, Thou art a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in thy being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. When he ceased, the first sentence of his prayer was immediately written by one of the brethren, read and adopted as the most perfect answer that could be conceived, as indeed, in a very sacred sense, God's own answer, given to prayer and in prayer, descriptive of himself. Who then was the youngest member of the committee? When we compare the birth dates of the respective members of the committee, we find that George Gillespie was the youngest by more than a dozen years. We may therefore safely conclude that George Gillespie was a man who was thus spiritually guided to frame almost unconsciously this marvelous answer. 
The only other productions of the Westminster Assembly were controversial rather than theological, although much directly religious truth is contained and earnestly enforced in those productions. They have been already mentioned, namely the reasons of dissent, together with the answers of the Assembly, which work is also known by the title of the Grand Debate. Closely connected with this is another but much smaller work entitled Answer to a Copy of a Remonstrance, and so on. This production is now very rarely to be met with and deserves to be republished as a complete vindication of the Assembly against the insinuations of their opponents then and detractors since. I have already stated my strong conviction that the work entitled Just Divinum Regiminus Ecclesiasticae or the Divine Right of Church Government, although bearing to be by sundry ministers of Christ within the City of London, if not directly the production of the Assembly, at least contains the answer prepared by them to the queries concerning the Just Divinum proposed by the Parliament. A subsequent examination and comparison of this work with other kindred works by members of the Assembly strongly confirms that opinion which I would thus express. The just venom of the city ministers appears to me to be both virtually and substantially the Assembly's answer to the Parliament, containing actually that very answer as prepared by them but with such additional amplifications in statement and illustrations by the city ministers themselves as might both render it more complete and fit for publication as a distinct work on the subject and at the same time entitle them to publish it on their own responsibility. This work well deserves to be republished with such explanatory notes as might adapt it to the present age for the principles which it states and advocates have not yet been received as they ought, as they must and will, before there can be a reign of righteousness and peace. We have already made some remarks on the necessity for the existence of creeds and confessions, and the important purposes subserved by these subordinate standards and re-resume that view for the purpose of stating the inference to which it ought to lead. Since a church cannot exist without some confession or mode of ascertaining that its members are agreed to their general conception of what they understand divine truth to mean, and since the successive rise of heretical opinions and their successive refutation necessarily tend to an enlargement of the confession, and at the same time to an increasing development of the knowledge of divine truth, ought it not to follow that the various confessions of separate churches would have a constant tendency to approximate till they should all blend in one harmonious confession of one church general? No one who has studied a harmony of Protestant confessions can hesitate to admit that this is a very possible, as it is a most desirable result. When further we rise to that spiritual element to which also our attention has been directed, we may anticipate an increasing degree of enlightenment in the Christian Church, bestowed by the Holy Spirit in answer to the earnest prayers of sincere and humble faith, which will greatly tend to hasten forward and secure an amount of Christian unity in faith and love 
far beyond what has existed since the times of the apostles. Entertaining this pleasing idea, we might expect both that the latest confession of faith framed by a Protestant church would be the most perfect, and also that it might form a basis of evangelical union to the whole church. To some, this may seem a startling or even an extravagant idea, but let it be remembered that owing to a peculiar series of unpropitious circumstances, the Westminster Assembly's Confession of Faith has never yet been adequately known to the Christian churches. By the Scottish Church alone was it fully received, and in consequence of the various events which have since befallen that church, comparatively little attention has been paid to the confession of faith till recent times. It is now, we trust, in the process of becoming more known and better understood than formerly, and we feel assured that the more it is known and the better it is understood, the more highly will its great and varied excellencies be estimated. This will tend at the same time to direct to it the attention of other churches, and we cannot help anticipating the degree of surprise which will be felt by many ingenuous minds that they have remained so long unacquainted with the production of such remarkable value. Such a result would be the realization of the great idea entertained by the leading members of the Westminster Assembly, and especially by the Scottish commissioners, with whom, indeed, it originated. No narrow or limited object could satisfy the desires and anticipations of these enlightened and large-hearted men. With one comprehensive glance, they surveyed the condition of Christendom and the world marked its necessities, and contemplated the remedy. Thus they formed the great and even sublime idea of a Protestant union throughout Christendom, not merely for the purpose of counterbalancing popery, but in order to purify, strengthen, and unite all true Christian churches, so that, with combined energy and zeal, they might go forth in glad compliance with the Redeemer's command, teaching all nations and preaching the everlasting gospel to every creature under heaven. Such was the magnificent conception of men whom it has been too much the fashion to stigmatize as narrow-minded bigots. It is not in the heart of a bigot that a love able to embrace Christendom could be cherished. It is not in the mind of a bigot that an idea of such moral sublimity could be conceived. It may be said, no doubt, that this idea was premature. Premature it was in one sense, for it could not be then realized. But the statement of it was not premature, for it was a statement of the grand result which ought to have been produced by the Reformation. In still another sense, it was not premature, any more than it is premature to sow the seed in spring from which we expect to reap the autumnal harvest. The seed must be sown before the harvest can be produced. The idea must be stated before it can be realized. It must then be left to work its way into the mind of man, to grow and strengthen and enlarge, till in due time it shall produce its fruit in its season. May it not be hoped that the fruit-bearing season is at hand? A time of refreshing and revival has come. The lethargic sleep of a century has passed away. 
the awakening throb of Christian life is high and warm. And again, snapping her benumbing bands asunder, the church is going forth on her heavenly mission with renewed energy and power. All things seem hastening forward to some mighty change or development. On all sides, the elements of evil are mustering with almost preternatural rapidity and strength. Popery has, to an unexpected degree, recovered from its deadly wound and its exhausted weakness, and is putting forth its destructive energies in every quarter of the world, especially in the high regions of political intrigue and diplomatic management. Numerous and startling are the coincidences which are appearing between the period of the Westminster Assembly and the present time. So strong are these that they force upon a reflecting mind the thought that all human events move in revolving cycles, one age but producing a renewed aspect of the past. In England, the dread aspect of Laudian prophecy has reappeared, called indeed by a new name, but displaying all the formidable characteristics of its predecessor, the same in its lofty pretensions, in its popish tendencies, in its superstitious contempt of every other church, and in its persecuting spirit. The civil government appears to be impelled by something like infatuation, and is introducing or giving countenance to measures that are darkly ominous to both civil and religious liberty as if hastening onward to a crisis which all may shudder to contemplate. The masses of the community are in a state ripe for any convulsion, however terrible, having been left for generations uneducated and uninstructed in religious truth. The Scottish ecclesiastical establishment has been rent asunder. Its constitution has been changed, or rather subverted, and those who firmly maintain the principles of the Westminster Assembly have been constrained to separate from the state in order to preserve these principles unimpaired. The true Presbyterian Church of Scotland is again disestablished, as she has been in former times. But she is free, free to maintain all those sacred principles bequeathed to her by reformers and divines and martyrs, free to offer to all other evangelical churches the right hand of brotherly love and fellowship, free to engage with them in the formation of a great evangelical union on the firm basis of sacred and eternal truth. Surely these concurring events are enough to constrain all who are able to comprehend them to long for some sure rallying ground on which the defenders of religious truth and liberty may plant their standard. Such a rallying ground we think the confession of faith would afford were its principles carefully considered and fully understood. But revolving cycles, though similar, are not identical. Each has in itself some characteristics of a peculiar nature, and to that extent part of its characteristics may terminate in its own period, and part may survive and expand into the new revolving movement. Thus, while the course of human events is one of revolving cycles, one tends to produce another, and that to expand and perfect what it received, and also to transmit its own new influences to its successor. 
all combining to carry on the ripening and widening movements that make the world's history. The truth of this view may be seen by closely marking the characteristics of the conflict which shook the nations 200 years ago and that which has begun to shake them now. At the Reformation, the idea of separate and coordinate jurisdictions, civil and ecclesiastical, was introduced. But the supreme civil power wished to combine and possess both, and this gave rise to what has been called Erastianism. At first, however, the conflict was waged chiefly respecting uniformity in matters external and submission to all civil decrees concerning rites, ceremonies, vestments, and common prayer. Subsequently, it related to a still more important point, discipline. On all these matters, the unscriptural encroachments of the civil power were resisted, not so much in some instances because of their importance as because of the principle which they involved. But the recent and still present and pending struggle regards the actual assumption of supremacy by civil courts over spiritual courts and such, and is therefore of a much more formidable character than that in which our ancestors were engaged. The ancient contest was founded ostensibly on the desirableness of national uniformity in public worship. The modern is founded ostensibly on the fact of endowments and on the civil rights which such endowments are said to involve or confer. The ancient contest was waged on the ground of the royal prerogative, the modern on the ground of abstract law. In the ancient struggle, the two kingdoms of England and Scotland strove to preserve both civil and religious liberty, and though or a time both seemed lost, yet the result was the complete gaining and establishing of the former by the revolution of 1688 and the full settlement of the British Constitution. In the modern struggle, religious liberty has yet to be asserted, defended, and secured, and that, too, against a power in many respects more formidable than any that has hitherto been encountered by the Christian Church. The power of abstract law in what is assumed to be a free country and in which religious toleration is understood to be maintained. Hence it is that whatever even seems to oppose the decisions of courts of law must expect to be overwhelmed with reproach and contumely, as if human law were infallible, and whatever opposed it were necessarily wildly and intolerably wrong. The Erastianism of human law is Erastianism in its most pernicious and terrible aspect and if triumphant, can end in nothing but the entire destruction of religious liberty, and consequently of true religion itself. Its direct aim is the abolition of spiritual courts, and so far as establishments are concerned, it has succeeded, for that is no true spiritual court which either cannot meet without the permission of the civil authority, or where not merely its decisions can be reviewed and reversed, by one of a different character, but where the judges themselves can be punished for their conscientious judgments. And since the Lord Jesus Christ instituted a government in his church, the loss of spiritual courts is the loss of that government, and necessarily the loss of direct union with the head and king of the church, 
which is, in other and plainer words, the loss of spiritual life and true religion. The cycle in which we live displays much of the impress of its predecessor and has also duties, advantages, and perils of its own. It may not be now either premature or too late to cherish the hope of at length accomplishing the Christian enterprise for which the Westminster Assembly met together and of realizing the great idea which filled the minds of its most eminent Christian patriots. The wide diffusion of knowledge, the rapid communication of thought and action from clime to clime, and the very progress of events in the world's history have rendered many a mighty undertaking of easy achievement now, which two centuries ago was utterly impossible. And what was gained then furnishes now a vantage ground on which the struggle may be more propitiously waged. Civil liberty and religious toleration are citadels not certainly impregnable, but not easily to be reduced. It is equally the duty and the interest of all who value these to unite in their defense, for the loss of them to one class of British citizens and to one church in Britain would issue in the loss of them to all. Let but the attempts be made in the spirit of faith and prayer and sincerity and love unfeigned, and there may now be realized a religious union embracing all true Christians. The errors which prevented the success of the Westminster Assembly may be to us beacons, both warning from danger and guiding on to safety. In their case, political influence and intrigue formed one baneful element of deadly power. Let all political influence be distrusted and avoided, and let political intrigue be utterly unknown in all our religious deliberations. In times of trouble and alarm, trust not in princes nor in the sons of men. With its divine counterpart, trust in the Lord and stay yourselves upon your God, should be the watchword and reply of all true Christian churches. Dissensions among brethren, groundless jealousies and misconstructions, and want of openness and candor were grievously pernicious to the Westminster Assembly. If the Presbyterians and the Independents could have banished the spirit of dissension, expelled all petty jealousy, and laid their hearts open to each other in godly simplicity and sincerity, all the uniformity that was really necessary might have been easily obtained. And if all truly evangelical Christians, whether they be Presbyterians or Independents or Baptists or Methodists or Episcopalians, such as some that could be named, would but give full scope to their already existing and strong principles and feelings of faith and hope and love, there could be little difficulty in framing such a Christian union, term it Presbyterian or Evangelical, so that it be truly scriptural as might be able, by the blessing and the help of God, to stem and bear back the growing and pretentious tide of popery and infidelity that threaten with their proud waves once more to overwhelm the world. Has not the time for this great evangelical and scriptural union come? It is impossible for anyone to look abroad upon the general aspect of the world with even a hasty glance without perceiving indications of an almost universal preparation for some great event. The nations of the earth are again still, not in peace, but like wearied combatants, resting on their arms a brief breathing space 
that with recovered strength and quickened animosity they may spring anew to the mortal struggle. During this fallacious repose there has been and there is an exertion of the most intense and restless activity by principles the most fiercely hostile for the acquisition of partisans. Despotism and democracy, superstition and infidelity have alike been mustering their powers and calling forth their energies, less apparently for mutual destruction according to their want and nature than in order to form an unnatural coalition and conspiracy against the very existence of free, pure, and spiritual Christianity. Nor in one point of view has Christianity been recently lying supine and dormant. Many a noble enterprise for the extension of the gospel at home and abroad has been planned and executed, and the great doctrines of saving truth have been clearly explained and boldly proclaimed with earnest warmth and uncompromising faithfulness. A time of refreshing also has come from the presence of the Lord. A spirit of revival has been poured forth upon the thirsty church, and the hearts of Christian brethren have learned to melt and blend with a generous and rejoicing sympathy to which they had too long been strangers. Can all these things be beheld and passed lightly over as leading to nothing and pretending nothing? That were little short of blind infatuation. What they do fully pretend it were presumptuous to say, but it is not difficult to say for what they form an unprecedented preparation. What now prevents a worldwide evangelical and scriptural union? All things are prepared, come to the marriage. If you love me, love one another. Because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Had these been fully the principles and rules of the conduct of the Westminster Assembly, its great idea might have been realized. Let them be those that animate and guide all Christian churches now. They have been felt in our great unions for prayer. They should be felt by all who venerate and can understand the standards of the Westminster Assembly. And if they be, then may we not only accomplish the object of its solemn leading covenant, concur in its confession of faith, and realize its great idea of a general evangelical union, but we may also, if such be the will of our divine head and king, be mightily instrumental in promoting the universal propagation of the gospel, and drawing down from above the fulfilled answer of that sacred prayer in which we all unite. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Appendix 1, see page 125. Every person must be aware that one of the charges most frequently and vehemently urged against the Presbyterian Church of Scotland is that of its being possessed by such a bigoted and proselytizing spirit as led it to attempt, by undue means, to force its own system upon England during the troubled period of the Civil War. In the hope of showing the utter groundlessness of that accusation and of repelling it at once and forever, I have resolved to append to this work the following important document, which contains a distinct statement by the Scottish Commissioners of the views and desires entertained by the Church and State of Scotland before the Civil War had begun. The paper was written by Alexander Henderson towards the close of the year 1640 and given in by the Scottish Commissioners to the Lords of the Treaty 
as they were termed in the beginning of 1641, when the business of negotiation had been transferred from Ripon to London. It was printed and published about the same time that it might be so fairly before the community as to enable all whom it concerned to know precisely what it was that Scotland wished and recommended, and to prevent, if possible, all calumnious misrepresentation. Certainly the publication of such a document tended of itself to bind the Scottish commissioners, and consequently the Scottish church and kingdom which they represented, from making any attempt to force their own system upon England, even if they had been afterwards inclined, since it put in the power of the English church and parliament to appeal immediately to this public declaration. There is no doubt that it both prepared the mind of England for the calling of the Westminster Assembly about two years and a half afterwards, and contributed to prevent, for a time, the rise of any considerable degree of jealousy in the ecclesiastical proceedings that followed, till the harmony that had prevailed was destroyed by the independent and Erastian controversies. Prolatic writers make no mention of this important document and consequently indulged in the most violent accusations against the Church of Scotland for presuming to endeavour to enforce its system upon England. Let the truth be known from that the Church of Scotland has nothing to fear. Our desires concerning unity in religion and uniformity of Church government as a special means to conserve peace in His Majesty's dominions. As we shall not make any proposition about this last article, of establishing a firm and happy peace, but that which we conceive to be both expedient and just, so will your lordships, we doubt not, in your wisdom consider that since that which is sought is not a cessation of arms for a time, but peace forever, and not peace only, but perfect amity and a more near union than before, which is of greater consequence than all the former articles, and is no marvel that a composition is so excellent and so powerful to preserve the whole island in health against all inward distempers and in strength against all contagion and wounds from without, require many ingredients of which, if any one be wanting, we may on both sides please ourselves for the present with the sweet name of peace, and yet for no longer enjoy peace itself, which hath not only sweetness and pleasure, but also much more profit and true honor in all the triumphs on earth. As we account it no less than usurpation and presumption for one kingdom or church, were it never so mighty and glorious, to give laws and rules of reformation to another free and independent church and kingdom, were it never so mean, civil liberty and conscience being so tender and delicate that they cannot endure to be touched but by such as they are wedded unto and have lawful authority over them. So have we not been so forgetful of ourselves, who are the lesser and of England, which is the greater kingdom, as to suffer any such arrogant and presumptuous thoughts to enter into our minds? Our ways also are witnesses of the contrary against the malicious, who do not express what we are or have been, but do still devise what may be fuel for a common combustion. Yet charity is no presumption, and the common duty of charity bindeth all Christians at all times, both to pray and profess their desire that all others were not only almost but altogether such as themselves, 
accept their afflictions and distresses. And beside common charity, we are bound as commissioners in a special duty to propound the best and readiest means for settling a firm peace. As we love not to be curious in another commonwealth, nor to play the bishop in another diocese, so may we not be careless and negligent in that which concerneth both nations. We do all know and profess that religion is not only the mean to serve God and to save our own souls, but that it is also the base and foundation of kingdoms and estates, and the strongest band to tie subjects and their prince in true loyalty and to knit their hearts one to another in true unity. Nothing so powerful to divide the hearts of people as division in religion, nothing so strong to unite them as unity in religion. And the greater zeal in different religions, the greater division, but the more zeal in one religion, the more firm union. In the paradise of nature, the diversity of flowers and herbs is pleasant and useful, but in the paradise of the church, different and contrary religions are unpleasant and hurtful. It is therefore to be wished that there were one confession of faith, one form of catechism, one directory for all the parts of the public worship of God and for prayer, preaching, administration of sacraments, and so on, and one form of church government in all the churches of His Majesty's dominions. This would, one, be acceptable to God Almighty, who delighteth to see His people walk in truth and unity, and who would look upon this island with a greater complacency that we were all of one heart and one soul in matters of religion. 2. This unity in religion will preserve our peace and prevent many divisions and troubles. Of old, as Beta recordeth, the difference about the time of observing of Easter, although no great matter in religion, and although in divers independent kingdoms, had troubled their peace if the wiser sort had not brought them to a uniformity, wherein they were so zealous that they would not suffer so much as one small island which differed from the rest to be unconform. 3. His Majesty and his successors in their government shall be eased of much trouble which ariseth from differences of religion and hath been very grievous unto kings and emperors as Jesus witnesseth in his third book. Chapter 12 of the Life of Constantine Sedition begotten in the Church of God, saith Constantine, seemeth to me to contain in itself more trouble and bitterness than any war or battle. For, since by divine providence His Majesty is King of diverse kingdoms, it shall be much content both to Himself, to His nobles and court, and to all His people, when His Majesty shall in person visit any of His kingdoms, that king, court, and people may, without all scruple of conscience, be partakers of one and the same form of divine worship, and his majesty with his court may come to the public assembly of the people and serve God with them according to the practice of the good kings of Judah, as, on the other part, difference in forms of divine worship divideth between the king and the people. 5. This shall be a great comfort to all His Majesty's subjects. When they travel abroad from their own country to any other place in His Majesty's dominions, whether for commerce or whatsoever negotiation and affairs, that they may with confidence resort to the public worship as if they were at home and in their own parish church, and shall satisfy many doubts 
and remove many exceptions, jealousies, and scandals which arise upon resorting to different forms of worship. 6. The names of heresies and sects of Puritans, Conformists, Separatists, which render the bowels both of church and kingdom, are a matter of much stumbling to the people, and diminish the glory of His Majesty's reign, shall no more be heard. But as the Lord is one, His name shall be one, and the name of the people one, in all His Majesty's dominions. 7. Papists and recusants shall despair of success to have their religion set up again, and shall either conform themselves or get them hence, and irreligious men shall have a great scandal removed out of their way, which shall be a mean of great safety and security, and of many blessings both to king and people. I am persuaded, saith Constantine, as Eusebius recordeth in his life, Lib. 2, c. 63. Were I able, as it is in my desire, to bind all the true worshippers of God by the common bond of concord, all the subjects of my empire would quickly turn themselves to their pious ordinances. 8. The unity of religion shall make ministers to build the church with both their hands, whilst now the one hand is holding out in opposition against the other party, and shall turn the many and unpleasant labors of writing and reading of unprofitable controversies into treaties of mortification and studies of devotion and practical divinity. This unity of religion is a thing so desirable that all sound divines and politicians are for it, where it may be easily obtained and brought about. And, as we conceive so pious and profitable a work to be worthy of the best consideration, so are we earnest in recommending it to your lordships, that it may be brought before his majesty and the parliament, as that which doth highly concern his majesty's honor, and the wail of all his dominions, and which, without forcing of consciences, seemeth not only to be possible, but an easy work. But because the matter is of great weight and of a large extent and therefore will require a large time, our desire is that for the present some course may be taken for an uniformity in government. 1. Because there can be small hope of unity in religion, which is a chief bond of peace in human society, unless first there be one form of ecclesiastical government. 2. Because difference in this point has been the main cause of all other differences between the two nations since the reformation of religion. 3. Because although it ought not to be so, we find it true in experience that churchmen through their corruption are more hot and greater zealots about government than about matters more substantial, their worldly dignities and wealth being herein concerned as Erasmus rendered this reason of the animosity of the Church of Rome against Luther, seeking after reformation, that he meddled with the Pope's crown and the monk's bellies. 4. It is observed by politicians, and we have found it in experience, that churchmen do not only bear with different religions and suffer divisions both in church and policy to rise and grow, but do also foment and cherish the contrary factions that they themselves may grow big and swell in greatness, while both sides have their dependence upon them and have their thoughts busied about other matters than about church government and the ambition, pomp, and other corruptions of church governors. 5. 
None of all the Reformed churches, although in nations far distant one from another, and other diverse princes and magistrates, are at so great a difference in church government as these two kingdoms be, which are in one island and under one monarch, which made King James of happy memory to labor to bring them under one form of government. But since all the question is whether of the two church governments shall have place in both kingdoms, for we know no third form of government of a national church distinct from these two, we do not presume to propound the form of government of the Church of Scotland as a pattern for the Church of England, but do only represent in all modesty these few considerations according to the trust committed unto us. 1. The government of the Church of Scotland is the same with the government of all the Reformed Churches, and hath been by them universally received and practiced with the reformation of doctrine and worship, from which so far as we depart we disjoin ourselves as far from them, and do lose so much of our harmony with them. Whence it is that from other Reformed churches it hath been written to the Church of Scotland, that it was a great gift of God that they had brought together into Scotland the purity of religion, and discipline whereby the doctrine is safely kept, praying and beseeching them so to keep these two together, as being assured that if the one fall the other cannot long stand. Upon the other part, the government of the Church of England was not changed with the doctrine at the time of Reformation. The Pope was rejected, but his hierarchy was retained, which hath been a ground of jealousy and suspicion to the Reformed Churches. Of continual contention in the Church of England these eighty years past, since the beginning of Queen Elizabeth, her reign, and of hopes and expectation to the Church of Rome, for, saith Conson, in his politics, Lib. 2, Cap. 18, were all England once brought to approve of bishops, it were easy to reduce it to the Church of Rome. But what one prince hath begun, and by reason of the times or of other hindrances, could not promote or perfect, another, raised up by the mercy of God, may bring to pass, according to the example of good Josiah, like unto whom there was no king before him, which we heartily wish may be verified of King Charles. 2. The Church of Scotland hath been continually and many sundry ways vexed and disquieted by the bishops of England. 1. By the continual and restless negotiation of the prime prelates in England with some of that faction in Scotland, both before the coming of King James into England, which we are ready to make manifest, and since his coming, so at last a kind of episcopacy was erected there by the power of the prelates of England against the confession of faith, the covenant, and acts of the national assemblies of the Church of Scotland. 2. The prelates of England, without the consent or knowledge of the Church of Scotland, gave episcopal consecration to some corrupt ministers of the Church of Scotland and sent them home to consecrate others like unto themselves. And when some great men have been, for their obstinacy and papistry, excommunicated by the Church of Scotland, they have been absolved from the sentence by the prelates of England, so that they have usurped the power of that which, in their own opinion, is the highest ordination, and of that which is indeed the highest point of jurisdiction. 3. They rested not here, but proceeded to change the form of divine worship, and for many years bred a great disturbance, both to pastors and people, 
by five articles of conformity with the Church of England. 4. Having in the former prevailed and having their opportunity and rare concourse of many powerful hands and heads ready to cooperate, they made strong assaults upon the whole external worship and doctrine of our Church by forcing upon us a popish book of common prayer for making Scotland first as the weaker and thereafter England conform to Rome and upon the consciences, liberties, and goods of the people by a book of canons and constitutions ecclesiastical, establishing a tyrannical power in the persons of our prelates, and abolishing the whole discipline and government of our church, without so much as consulting with any presbytery, synod, or assembly in all the land. 5. They procured subsidies to be lifted for war against us, under pain of deprivation to all of the clergy that should refuse. 6. They commanded both preaching and imprecations against us as enemies to God and the King. 7. They have received into the ministry and provided places for such of our ministers as, for their disobedience to the voice of the assembly and their other faults and scandals, were deposed in Scotland. And finally, they have left nothing undone which might tend to the overthrow of our church, not only of late, by the occasion of these troubles whereof they have been the authors, but of old, from that opposition which is between Episcopal government and the government of the Reformed Churches by assemblies. Upon the contrary, the Church of Scotland never had molested them, either in the doctrine, worship, ceremonies, or discipline of their church, but have lived quietly by them, kept themselves within their line, and would have been glad to enjoy their own liberties and peace which yet is, and by the help of God shall be, our constant desire. Yet can we not conceal our minds, but in our consciences, and before God, must declare, not from any sauciness or presumptuous intention to reform England, but from our just fears and apprehensions, that our reformation, which hath cost us so dear, and is all our wealth and glory, shall again be spoiled and defaced from England that whatsoever peace shall be agreed upon, we cannot see nor conceive the way how our peace shall be firm and durable, but our fear is that all will run into a confusion again, ere it be long, if episcopacy shall be retained in England, for the same causes will not fail to produce the same effects. Their opposition against and hatred of the government of the Reformed Churches their credit at court and nearness to the king living in England, the opinion they have of their own great learning and of the glory of their political church, joined with the small esteem and disdain of our Christian simplicity, the consanguinity of their hierarchy with the Church of Rome and their fear to fall before us at last, will still be working, especially now, when they are made operative, and shall be set on work at the first advantage by their vindictive disposition to be avenged upon us for the present quarrel, which can never be changed by any limitations. As on the contrary, the cause being taken away, the effects will cease, and the peace shall be firm. It would seem that limitations, cautions, and triennial parliaments may do much, but we know that fear of perjury, infamy, excommunication, and the power of a national assembly which was in Scotland as terrible to a bishop as a parliament, could not keep our men from rising to be prelates, 
and after they had risen to their greatness, their apology was, these other cautions or conditions were rather accepted of for the time, to prevent all occasion of jangling with the contentious than out of any purpose to observe them forever. Much is spoken and written for the limitations of bishops, but what good can their limitation do to the church if ordination and ecclesiastical jurisdiction shall depend upon them and shall not be absolutely into the hands of the assemblies of the church? And if it shall not depend upon them, what shall their office be above other pastors? Or how shall their labors be worthy so large wages? What service can they do to king, church, or state? Rome and Spain may be glad at the retaining of the name of bishops more than the reformed churches, which expect from us at this time some matter of rejoicing. 3. The reformed churches do hold without doubting their church officers, pastors, doctors, elders, and deacons, and their church government by assemblies to be jure divino and perpetual, as is manifest in all their writings. And on the other hand, episcopacy, as it differs from the office of pastor, is almost universally acknowledged, even by the bishops themselves, and their adherents, to be but a human ordinance, established by law and custom for conveniency, without warrant of scripture, which therefore by human authority may be altered and abolished, upon so great a conveniency as is the hearty conjunction with all the reformed churches and a durable peace of the two kingdoms, which have been formerly divided by this partition wall. We therefore desire that just divinum and humanum, conscience and convenience, yea, the greater conveniency with the lesser, and, we may add, a conveniency and an inconveniency may be compared and equally weighed in the balance without adding any weight of prejudice. 4. The Church of Scotland, warranted by authority, hath abjured Episcopal government as having no warrant in Scripture, and by solemn oath and covenant diverse times before, and now again of late, hath established the government of the Church by assemblies, but England, neither having abjured the one nor sworn the other, hath liberty from all bands of this kind to make choice of that which is most warrantable by the Word of God. And lest it be thought that we have willfully bound ourselves of late by oath that we be not pressed with a change, we desire to be considered that our late oath was nothing but the renovation of our former oath and covenant, which did bind our church before, but was transgressed by many by means of the prelates. 5. If it shall please the Lord to move the king's heart to choose this course, he shall, in a better way than was projected, accomplish the great and glorious design which King James had before his eyes all his time, of the unity of religion and church government in all his dominions. His crowns and kingdoms shall be free of all assaults and policies of churchmen, which, whether in the way of ecclesiastical jurisdiction and church censure, or by complying with the Pope, the greatest enemy of monarchy, or by bringing civil governments into a confusion, or by taking the fat of the sacrifice to themselves when the people are pleased with the government and when they are displeased by transferring the hatred upon authority which was never wont to be done by any good statesman, all which, all these ways, have proceeded from bishops seeking their own greatness, never from assemblies, which unless overruled by bishops 
have been a strong guard to monarchy and magistracy, both the one and the other being the ordinances of God. The church shall be peaceably governed by common consent of churchmen in assemblies, in which the king's majesty hath always that eminency which is due unto the supreme magistrate, and by which all heresies, errors, and schisms abounding under episcopal government shall be suppressed, and the state in all civil matters, in parliament, council, and other inferior judicatures, governed by civil men and not by churchmen, who being out of their own element, must needs stir and make trouble to themselves and the whole state, as woeful experience hath taught. The work shall be better done, and the means which did uphold their unprofitable pomp and greatness may supply the wants of many preaching ministers to be provided to places, and without the smallest loss or damage to the subjects, may be a great increase of His Majesty's revenues. His royal authority shall be more deeply rooted in the united hearts, and more strongly guarded by the joint forces of His subjects, as if they were all of one kingdom, and His greatness shall be enlarged abroad by becoming the head of all the Protestants in Europe, to the great horror of his enemies, and to the sowing of greatness to his posterity and royal succession. All which we entreat may be represented unto his majesty and the houses of parliament, as the expression of our desires and fears, and as a testimony of our faithfulness in acquiring ourselves in the trust committed unto us, but no ways for getting our distance, or intending to pass our bounds, in prescribing or setting down rules to their wisdom and authority, which we do highly reverence and honor, and from which only, as the proper fountain, the laws and order of reformation in this church and policy must proceed, for the nearer union and greater happiness of His Majesty's dominions. Let the thoughtful reader ponder well the deep meaning of this remarkable document and while he will perceive in it a complete vindication of the Church of Scotland, he will also be constrained, when he contemplates the present sufferings of that Church, to admire the almost prophetic foresight of that great man by whom it was written, who saw clearly that the prelatic spirit would never cease to strive for the overthrow of the Presbyterian Church. 2. See pages 201-202 and 238 to 240. So much reference has been made by a certain class of writers to the name and reputation of the learned Selden, and the influence which he is said to have exercised in the Westminster Assembly, that I have thought it expedient to state his arguments more fully in the body of the work than their own merit seems to me to deserve. I have given them also as reported by Lightfoot, who, being likewise an Erastian, cannot be suspected of doing them injustice. But as the same discussion is reported in Gillespie's own notes of the Assembly's proceedings, I am persuaded that the general reader will peruse the following extract with considerable curiosity and interest. Debate respecting Matthew 18 Mr. Selden said, There is nothing in Matthew 18 of excommunication or jurisdiction, which could not be exercised by the ancient church till the Church of Rome got the power from the Emperor, that some late men, as Dominicus Solo and Cyrus and Henriquez, say that there is some power given to the Church, which the Church afterwards did specificate to be a power of excommunication. 
He said, Matthew's Gospel was the first that was written about eight years after Christ's ascension, the first year of Claudius, that it was written in Hebrew and translated into Greek by John, that though the Hebrew that Matthew wrote be not extant, yet two editions of the Gospel are in Hebrew, one by Munster, another by Tilius, that we find in Tilius's edition, Cahal, Matthew 18, and Gouda, Matthew 18, though in Munster's Cahal, be in both places. Now there being no place of the New Testament written when this was written, we must expound it by the custom of the Jews, which, according to the law, Leviticus 19.17, was that when one offended his brother, the offended brother required satisfaction, and if he get it not, speak to him before two or three witnesses, and if he hear them not, to tell it to a greater number, for which he offered to show many Hebrew authors and Talmudists. That they had in Jerusalem, besides the great Sanhedrin, two courts of twenty-three, and in every city one court of twenty-three. That the casting out of the synagogue was only the putting of a man in that condition that he might not come within four cubits of another. That any man being twelve years of age might excommunicate another. Not that he was altogether cast off from having anything to do with the synagogue. He said the convocation was called Clerus Angelicanus and the parliament Populus Angelicanus. So here, Gouda and Greek word signify only a select number, that the word is used in one place for woman. Deuteronomy 23 Shall not enter into the congregation. That Christ, when he said this ecclesiae, was in Capernaum, where there was a court of 23. That the meaning is, tell the Sanhedrin, which can redress the wrong. That if the Jewish state had been Christian, their civil government might have continued though the ceremonies were gone, so that Ecclesiae here would have been a civil court. Gillespie's answer, as given by himself, is as follows. It is a spiritual, not a civil court, which is meant by the Church, Matthew 18, for one subjective materia is spiritual. If thy brother trespass against thee, is not meant of personal or civil injuries, but of any scandal given to our brother, whereby we trespass against him, inasmuch as we trespass against the law of charity. Augustine and Testastus expounded it of any scandal, and the coherence confirmeth it, for scandals were spoken of before in that chapter. 2. The end is spiritual, the gaining of the offender's soul, which is not the end of a civil court. 3. The persons are spiritual, for Christ speaks to his apostles. 4. The manner of proceeding is spiritual, verses 19 and 20, prayer and doing all in the name of Christ, which places not only our divines, but Testastus and Hugo Cardinalis, expound of meetings for church centers, not of meetings for worship. 5. The center is spiritual, binding of the soul, or retaining of sins, verse 18, compared with Matthew 16:19, John 20:23. 20, 6. Christ would not have sent his disciples for private injuries to a civil court, especially those who are living among heathens. 1 Corinthians 6, 1. 7. If we look even to the Jewish customs, they had spiritual censures. 
to be held as a heathen man and a publican, imports a restraint, a sacris, for heathens were not admitted into the temple. Ezekiel 44, 7-9, Acts 21:28. So the profane were debarred from the temple. Josephus Antique Lib 19, Cat 17, tells us that one Simon, a doctor of the law of Moses in Jerusalem, did accuse King Agrippa as a wicked man that should not be admitted into the temple. Philo, Lib de Sacrificantibus, writeth, It was the custom in his own time that a manslayer was not admitted into the temple. The scripture also giveth light in this, For if they that were ceremonially unclean might not enter into the temple, how shall we think that they which were morally unclean might enter? The close coincidence of the debate, as here given, with the account of it in Lightfoot's journal, will at once be perceived confirming the authenticity of both. The chief difference between them being that Gillespie's is the more clear and succinct of the two, as might have been expected from his intellectual preeminence. While giving some fragmentary records of the opinions of the leading men among the Westminster divines on peculiar points, it may not be inexpedient to show what were the sentiments of Gillespie on the subject of the election of ministers and how far these were entertained by the Church of Scotland at that period and are identical with those held by the evangelical majority of the present time. The arguments of Henderson, Gillespie, and Rutherford have been already stated and used by them in the debate on the subject, on account of which will be found in page 175 of this work. On a subsequent occasion, when Gillespie in his male audience was answering the arresting arguments of Coleman and Hussey, the subject came again under discussion and drew forth from Gillespie a restatement of his opinion. Hussey had boldly affirmed that the Parliament may require such as they receive for preachers of truth, to send out able men to supply the places and that without any regard to the allowance or disallowance of the people. This truly tyrannical theory Gillespie strongly condemns, reminds his opponent that one and not the least of the controversies between the Papists and the Protestants is what right the Church hath in the vocation of ministers, refers to the Helvet Concession which says, that the right choosing of ministers is by the consent of the Church, and to the Belgic Confession, which says, We believe that the ministers, seniors, and deacons ought to be called to these their functions, and by the lawful election of the Church to be advanced into these rooms, adding, I might here, if it were requisite, bring a heap of testimonies from the Protestant writers. The least thing which they can admit of is, that a minister be not obtruded, were in a tent ecclesiae. It may be helped when it is done without making null or void the ministry, but in a well-constituted church there ought to be no intrusion into the ministry. Male Audis, page 27. In his miscellany questions, the last work that came from his pen published after his death, Gillespie discusses the question of the election of pastors with the congregation's consent in a chapter of 24 pages stating the various opinions held by prelatists, sectarians, and others, explaining what he regarded to be the system of the Church of Scotland and answering objections. 
He cites with approbation the opinions of the reformers Luther, Calvin, Zanchius, Beza, and many others, all of whom maintained ut sign populi consensu et suffragio nemo legitimate electus, that without the consent and suffrage of the people, no person was lawfully elected, also the strong language of the first and second books of discipline. This liberty with all care must be preserved to every several cook to have their votes and suffrages in election of their ministers, and it is to be assured that any person be intruded in any offices of the cook, contrary to the will of the congregation to which they are appointed, adding several acts of assembly to the same effect. In answering objections, his own opinion comes very clearly into view. As for instance, objection, this liberty granted to congregations prejudice the rights of patrons. Answer, if it were so, yet the argument is not pungent in divinity, for why should not human right give place to divine right? The states of Zealand did abolish patronages, and gave to each congregation the free election of their own minister, which I take to be one cause why religion flourishes better there than in any other of the United Provinces. Again, it is objected that the Church's liberty of consenting or not consenting must ever be understood to be rational, so that the Church may not disassent without objecting somewhat against the doctrine or life of the person presented. There is nothing new, it seems, even if the objections of law lords and moderates. In answer to this, Gillespie first cites authorities to prove that this argument is the very one used by popish and prelatic writers in defense of their systems, which allowed no shadow of liberty to the people, and then exclaims, Now then, if this be all that people may object, it is no more than prelates, yea, papists, have yielded. This objection cannot strike against the election of a pastor by the judgment and vote of the particular eldership of that church where he is to serve. Men vote in elderships, as in all courts and consistories, freely according to the judgment of their conscience, and are not called to an account for a reason of their votes. As the vote of the eldership is a free vote, so is the congregation's consent a free consent. Any man, though not a member of the congregation, hath place to object against the admission of him that is presented, if he knows such an impediment as may make him incapable, either at all of the ministry or of the ministry of that church to which he is presented, so that unless the congregation has somewhat more than liberty of objecting, they shall have no privilege or liberty, but that which is common to strangers as well as to them. Though nothing be objected against the man's doctrine or life, yet if the people desire another better, or as well qualified, by whom they find themselves more edified than by the other, that is a reason sufficient, if a reason must be given at all. But we cannot afford space for more quotations, nor can it be necessary to do so, as those already produced must convince every unprejudiced person that the Church of Scotland held then as in the days of Knox, and always down to the present time, that congregations possess the inherent right of choosing their own pastors, and that when patronage interfered with this right, the very least privilege to which they were entitled was the expression of their free consent, 
or equally free dissent, without being obliged to assign reasons for either, and that no man should be intruded contrary to that free expression of their mind and will. And these opinions of Gillespie, according to Bailey, were held by the majority of the Assembly of 1649, when preparing a new directory for the election of ministers, after the abolition of patronage by the Parliament. Yet the Church of Scotland has been disestablished on the strength of the utterly false assertion that the principle that no pastor be intruded into a parish contrary to the will of the congregation was never heard of till the year 1834. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.